Well, good morning again, church. It's so good to see you. Thanks for gathering here this morning, and thank you for bringing the church into uh, this sanctuary. Uh, and thank you for those that are gathered with us for Crosspoint at home. Thanks for bringing the church into your living room, around your dining room table, wherever you happen uh, to be. And if you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, we've never been introduced. My name is Jamie. It is my great joy and privilege to be one of the pastors here uh, at Crosspoint, and it's my joy this morning to open up God's Word uh, with you. We've been journeying through the great Gospel of John for most of 2021. We're going to pick that back up. Up in a couple of weeks from now, but we wanted to hit pause as we kind of start the, the ministry year, kind of the fall launch with things to, to revisit what's our vision for making disciples, all right? So we're called as a church to be disciples, to make disciples, and what might help that come about, all right? Certainly we need God's spirit, absolutely. And then what are some of the rhythms and habits that the Lord invites us into, and with that, it's not to actually rob you of joy. Maybe when you think habits, practices, rhythms, ritual, you're like, oh, like that sounds awful. And it's like, that seems to be the furthest thing from joy in your mind. But if we understand the Lord's invitation and what he has for us, there are these gifts that he's given to us that actually will cultivate joy. And so over these few weeks, we started last week and we're doing a different kind of habit each week. We're looking at these habits of joy. And as you saw in the video, the way we talk about those things at Crosspoint is we believe each follower of Christ, all right, if you want to grow as a Christian, there's an invitation to engage in the pulpit, chair, table, and square. And each week we're going to unpack those. And so last week we looked at the call to the pulpit, which simply means not that we're all running up here, but rather the weekly gathering of God's people around the word and the sacrament, worship through song, all of that. There's a huge importance to that. And yet, the church is also more than what happens together on a Sunday morning. So I love that you're here, whether you're in person or gather with us on, online, but also there's this invitation to grow outside of Sunday mornings, to be more shaped into the image and likeness of Jesus. And the language we give to that, or at least an aspect of that, is the chair. And so I'll unpack that more in just a moment. But to help us just see again what these habits are, a way to understand them, David Mathis in his book that's called Habits of Grace actually said this. He says, I can flip a switch, but I don't provide the electricity. I can turn on a faucet, but I don't make the water flow. There will be no light and no liquid refreshment without someone else providing it. And so it is for the Christian with the ongoing grace of God. His grace is essential for our spiritual lives, but we don't control the supply. We have to keep that in mind. And yet he says this, we can't make the favor of God flow, but he has given us circuits to connect and pipes to open expectantly. There are paths along which he has promised his favor. So when we talk about these things, we're not talking about creating the grace of God or this experience, but rather we're simply saying, hey, what are these faucets that can be open where we can experience or the light switches that can go on? Not because we're creating the electricity, but rather God has given us each of these habits or practices a way to experience his grace and mercy. And one of them is what's happening right now. So I'm so glad that you're here. But I also know you're going to leave here, all right, and Monday's going to come, and Tuesday's going to come, and Wednesday, and like each day, and it's going to bring challenges, it's going to bring difficulties. Like you might walk out of here, hopefully you do feel like encouraged in the Lord, and yet, man, you and I, we're up against it. And under normal circumstances, it's a fight, it's a battle to find joy, but can we all admit, right, it's even harder, I think, during this time. And so what's it going to look like tomorrow when you wake up and maybe some of this kind of feeling maybe has worn off? Like, how do you fight for joy? Well, the Lord invites us to this communion with him. And the way we talk about that here is this chair. It's the call to communion or to contemplation. What I mean by chair is, 
is this. You think of maybe getting up in the morning, all right, and you get your cup of coffee, your, your cup of tea. I hope you do coffee, but no, no judgment, right? Um, and so uh, you get that, and maybe you've got the spot in your, in your home where you love, like it's the comfortable chair. Maybe it's out on a back porch if you can deal with the sweat at this time of the year, whatever it happens to be. But what's that space maybe where you can go and just commune with God? And to contemplate your story in light of the grand sweeping narrative, the grand story of God's kingdom and what he's up to. What would it look like to sit at the feet of Jesus? And it's not that work is unimportant. We're going to look at that actually in a couple of weeks and how even that is a habit or practice or rhythm the Lord invites us into to experience him. But I need to sit at the feet of Jesus. It's reminiscent of the, the story that is told in the Gospels where you've got these sisters, Martha and Mary, and Martha is engaged in hospitality, and that's a beautiful thing, but it tells us she's anxious, all right? Like she's busy getting all the things together because people are coming over and people are in the home, and she actually gets a little mad, perturbed at her sisters, like, what are you doing, Mary? Come on, like, why don't you help out? Like, this, you know, these plates aren't gonna set themselves. Like, get in here, right? And she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus, in love, says to Martha, your sister's chosen the better way, not because he's anti-hospitality and not because he's anti-work, but rather he's saying it's so important that you and I get time at the feet of Jesus. So when we talk about chair, what we're considering here is what does that sort of daily practice in rhythm look like? Now, admittedly, as we get into this, you might just expect to sort of, okay, I'm going to tell you to read your Bible and to pray and do that. And that certainly is part of it. But we're going to look at a story here that it's going to take us, at first glance, as I read this, my guess is you're going to be like, what does this have to do with sitting at the feet of Jesus? And what does this have to do with reading my Bible or praying? All right. But I think it's going to help us wrestle with this. It's going to help us wrestle with this sort of question. Are you and I living with like an awareness of like kind of dialed into your story? Not to look inward, but rather, are you and I even paying attention to like what's going on at a heart level? What is that? Well, what's creating the anxiousness? What's creating the lack of joy? What perhaps is leading us down a path of, of some despair and some discouragement? And not to try and oversimplify the complexities of mental health, that is not what I'm seeking to do here, but I do believe that there's this invitation that we have to sit at the feet of Jesus and to experience his grace and to have some space, because here's, here's what I at least assume I know about your life, is it's hard to find that time. There will always be a number of things vying for your attention, your time, and the, the thought of like, well, that sounds nice to sit at the, the feet of Jesus, whatever that, that means, but I don't have time for that. And though you might not articulate that, and though you might nod your head like, oh, this is important, at the end of the day, there's so many things that squeeze that out. And the Lord is saying, hey, will you come? And will you not only examine God's story and who he is and then begin to see yourself in light of that? And I wonder if in that space, the circumstances, the difficulties, they're not going to evaporate and go away. But I do believe the Lord will speak to us in those moments. And the Lord will encourage us. Because the question comes down to, like, what voice are you listening to? And the story I'm about to read is a man who for a time was listening to the voice of God. It was the dominant voice in his life. And then suddenly another voice came on the scene and he, he just lost it. 
Like he literally just went down this path of running away from God's purposes, running away from joy in the Lord, and found himself in this ultimate place of despair. And the story is in 1 Kings chapter 19. So if you got a Bible, please turn there. And if you don't, you can always make use of going on your phone. Go to cplife.church. As you scroll down, you'll see something that says sermon notes or message notes. Click that. Click the date for, for today, and you'll see anything that's up on the screen, including the text here this morning, will be, is listed there in the space to take notes. Let me go ahead and read this account. If you're unfamiliar with what's going on, we will set some of the context here in a moment. But these 18 verses, so this is this narrative account of a man named Elijah, this prophet, this man of God, all right? It says this, Ahab, who was the king of Israel at the time, told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So she's throwing it down. Like there's this threat, all right? He's a marked man at this point. Then Elijah says, became afraid and immediately ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there. But he went on a day's journey into the wilderness, and he sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. And he said, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Then he lay down, and he slept under the broom tree. Suddenly, an angel touched him, and the angel told him, get up and eat. And then he looked, and there at his head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank, and then he lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord returned for a second time, and touched him and said, get up and eat, or the journey will be too much for you. So he got up and he ate and drank. Then on the strength from that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God, which is also Mount Sinai, which we'll come back to. He entered a cave there and spent the night. And suddenly the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord, God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. And then he said, go out, stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. And at that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord, like these hurricanes force winds. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, and he went out, and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And suddenly, a voice came to him again and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He is, and, I, and Elijah's response, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, he replied, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, go and return by the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you are to anoint Hazel as king over Aram, you are to anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, from Abel, Meholah, as prophet in your place. Then Jehu will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Hazel, Elisha will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Jehu. But... I will leave 7,000 in Israel, every knee that is not bowed to Baal and every mouth 
that has not kissed him. This is God's word for us this morning. Now, again, read that. and like That's a fascinating account. What does this have to do with me sitting in a chair with a cup of coffee in the morning, like connecting with, with the Lord, right? We're going to get there, but I think as we start, what we see in this narrative, what we see in this text, I think it's fair to say at this point that it's a picture of despair. Like there's no other way around it. Elijah is at the lowest of lows. Like if you find yourself in your prayer time being like, Lord, kill me now, Things have gone bad, right? You're having a bad, bad day. And so I want to look for a moment like, okay, what are some of the results of this despair and what are some of the the reasons? And what's so fascinating about Elijah, if you are familiar with him, some of this you might know, but in case you're not or need a bit of a refresher, his life up until this point had honestly felt a bit like it was pretty charmed. He felt pretty victorious, some of you might be old enough to remember this, but in like ABC's wide world of sports before ESPN took over everything, all right, um, they would have their weekend programming and always at the intro, there was this line that sort of the voiceovers, they're showing all these clips of all these athletes performing things and they would show those that were celebrating and they would talk about the thrill of victory, right? And then they'd show some poor soul tumbling down the mountain as he was attempting to ski, right? And the agony of defeat, And that was sort of this juxtaposition of like, well, in the world of the athletic competition and contest, some get the victory, some get defeat. What's fascinating is like almost simultaneously, these things have happened to Elijah. It's not just that he's experienced victory and someone else experiences the defeat, but rather, no, like he's experiencing the defeat right now, the rejection, the devastation, the depression, like all of that. And yet, if you were to go back and read, and we don't have time for this, but just to highlight a couple of things, if you were to go back just a couple of chapters Elijah was winning. I don't know how else to put it to you. Like everything for him, I mean, he seemed to possess just a connection with the Lord that was unheard of. And so starting back in chapter 17, for one, he's told to go to the king of Israel. Israel's been disobedient. They're worshiping the false gods of Baal. They're engaged in all these horrible practices. And he goes to the king of Israel, who should have been leading the people toward worship of the one true God and king. And so... Because there's judgment, because he's not engaged in that. Elijah goes up to him and says, hey, the Lord gave me a message to tell you. Like, I'm going to pray to the Lord, and the rains are going to cease, and there's going to be famine, and there's going to be drought in this land. Good luck with that. I mean, that's the kind of power that the Lord had given to him. He prays, and that happens. And yet, Elijah was still going to need to eat, right? Like, how is he going to survive the drought? Well, the Lord brings him to a place where there's this little bit of water. And then each day, morning and evening, he would send these ravens. These birds would show up with meat, all right? Like, I think Uber Eats is pretty amazing. I've never had a bird deliver me, like, a steak, right? And so all of this is happening every single day. So he prays, and the rains stop, but the Lord leads him, feeds him miraculously. Now, the water eventually does dry up, and he finds himself in this town, and he runs into the, this, this widow, this woman who's got this son, and their supply has run out. And Elijah's like, hey, will you basically bake me some bread? Will you make me a meal? And she's like, sir, we are literally preparing our last meal. Like, we're going to eat this. There's no more food, and I plan for my son and I to die in the next couple of days. Welcome. You want to sit down? Right? And so they're having this encounter, and Elijah says to her, if you will prepare this meal for me, If you will entrust the little bit that you actually have, the Lord will see fit that it never runs out. And this woman entrusts herself to the Lord, and she prepares the meal, and the little bit of supply that she had, it just never runs out. Like, open the fridge, more food, open the fridge, more, like that sort of thing. 
And then sometime later, though, her son gets sick and her son dies. And Elijah says, this is not the end of the story. And Elijah proceeds to lay himself on top of this boy, this son of hers, and he is raised from the dead. Like, Elijah's killing it. I mean, this dude is winning, all right? And then, as we roll into chapter 18, there's this showdown, which many of you might be familiar with, where he says, all right, let's prove once and for all, who's the real God? Is it Baal or is it Yahweh? Is it the king of Israel? And he says, two. He says to the king Ahab, he says, hey, you get all the prophets of Baal. There's 450 of them. You create an altar. You make an altar. You take a bowl, you cut it to pieces, and you pray to your God to call down fire on that altar. And I, by myself, I don't have 450 people. I am greatly outnumbered. I, too, will stack up the stones. I'll make the altar. I'll get the bowl. I'll chop it all up. And then I will call out to my God, and we will see who sends the fire for this offering. And if you know the story, it's just this fascinating account from like the earliest hours in the day through the evening The prophets of Baal are screaming and crying and praying to their God, asking that this fire might fall from the heavens. And I love a lot of things about the Bible, but one of the things I really like as well is that there's some good taunting and mockery and a little bit of sarcasm, right? And so Elijah's like, oh, maybe you need to cry louder, all right? And they're crying louder. They're literally cutting themselves. I mean, it's just getting intense. And then Elijah's like, oh, maybe he's occupied, which is the translator's polite way of saying, hey, maybe he's in the can. Maybe your God is too busy right now. Maybe when he gets out of the bathroom, when he's done doing his business, maybe then he can can send the fire. I mean, he's just straight up mocking them. And eventually it's Elijah's turn. And Elijah, if you know the story, to just up the ante, says get the little bit of water that they had, and he begins to drench the altar and the offering, the bowl that is there, And then he prays to his God, and like that, fire comes down. It licks up all of the water, takes the whole offering, and then it's on at that moment. The people of God in that moment are like, oh, that's the true God, and they slaughter the prophets of Baal. Very intense story, all right? That is what precedes where we find this man of God now in this place of despair, I mean, even at the end of chapter 18, Ahab is going back to tell his wife Jezebel, all right? He's to tell her what has happened, and there's probably this expectation in the air. Oh, the king's finally going to do the right thing. The king is finally going to call the people to a right worship. Look what just took place. And in humility, it tells us, there's this profound picture. Elijah, it says, even though Ahab is in a chariot, Elijah says he kind of like, girds up his outfit that he's on, tucks it into his belt, and he outruns, he runs ahead of the chariot. Like, that's some adrenaline that's happening, right? Not only is he running this great distance, he's outrunning the chariot. And it's not for him to prove, I'm faster than the horse and chariot. But in that time, in that place, it was the servants that ran ahead. And Elijah understands, I'm a servant of God, of the ultimate king, but I'm even here to serve who has up to this point been a very wicked king, I will serve him because I'm trusting the Lord, his sovereignty, his purposes. You think, man, what an amazing story. Like by chapter 19, we're expecting revival, renewal to break out. And then what happens? So let's just look for a moment, right? I mean, you heard it here. There is this fear that overtakes him the moment Jezebel, the queen, says, I'm going to put him to death. It says Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for 
his life. He takes off. Up until this point in the story of Elijah, when he has gone and done certain things, it's always because the Lord spoke. The Lord told him to go do something, asked him to be obedient. In this case, he doesn't consult with God. He doesn't pray to God. He doesn't sit and wait and say, Lord, what would you have for me? But he takes matters into his own hands, like the prophet Jonah when Lord Lord told him to go to Nineveh, and he goes, I will go the exact opposite direction. Thank you. It's that sort of thing. So he's on the run. He's so consumed with fear. The man who literally just saw to the putting to death the 450 prophets, one against 450, is suddenly consumed with fear because the queen wants him dead. Additionally, it says this, when he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there, which is another way of saying that he's just abandoning his calling. The prophet, to to not have his servant, to say, hey, you go there and I'm going to go back out into the wilderness a day's journey is his way of just saying, I'm done. I'm completely tapped out, full of fear, full of anxiety. I don't know what is happening, but like I'm done. This being a prophet for the Lord, a spokesperson for the Lord, seeking to do the Lord's will, like I'm done. Like I've had it. I cannot carry on. And I don't know the particulars of your life and your story, but I know enough to know this. The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, like you have experienced that. You might have experienced that this week and the disorienting nature of that and the whiplash that you feel when it's like seemingly maybe things are going well and suddenly it's like the the bottom falls out. You're just like, what is happening? And there's this feeling of like, I just want to hang it up. I think I'm done. Where is the Lord in this? And it gets so intense that it says he begins to pray for his death. He sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die. I mean, this is how burdened he is. It tells us in verses four to five, and he said, I have had enough, Lord. And maybe, you, maybe you're here this morning, you're feeling that. He says, take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors. I mean, he's looking, and this man who's been, he's not perfect, but he's been obedient to the Lord. He's like, oh, just feels this guilt, feels this shame, feels this like, listen, I'm no better than anybody. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. And yet, what is so interesting, and I don't know if you picked up on this as I I read it, there's two points where the Lord comes and addresses him and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? We'll talk about the significance of that in a moment. And Elijah has this sort of speech that he gives, right? He says, These words, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. And then a few verses later, the Lord comes to him again and says, hey, where are you, Elijah? And he repeats the same thing verbatim. And what I think is interesting and could be a little bit confusing until I take 30 seconds to examine my own heart and realize, oh, these things can exist at the same time. A feeling of despair, dejection, this sort of depression that that sets in, this pervasive feeling, maybe just this melancholy. Maybe you're here this morning, like, I don't know if it's full-blown depression, but man, there's just like this lack of joy. And yet, there can be a view of self-importance and of self-pity and a focus on self and an entitlement that also rears its ugly head simultaneously. So kill me now, Lord, but also Elijah has this sort of hero complex of like, I'm the only one, I was doing it all, I was obedient. 
It's sort of this martyr, this self-pity playing this card like, oh my gosh, look at all that has happened to me. And yes, there's significant things that have happened to him. But has he forgotten what has happened in God's provision over and over and over again? And what is it that's within the human heart that can kind of rise up and have this feeling of just such self-importance? But I think we all know, like, oh, yeah, that's there. If we're the call to the chair is some time of contemplation to understand your story. And I think if we're honest, and if we sit at the feet of Jesus, and we know his holiness and his majesty and his power, when I'm in that spot, I will start to see, oh, there's an arrogance, there's an entitlement posture that I have. And we could spend a lot of time trying to unpack, like, okay, well, what are some of the, what are some of the reasons? Maybe what led to this? I mean, I'll put a few things before you. I think you could probably come up with your own. One, just the physicality of it, right? I mean, imagine he just fought 450 prophets, put them to death with the sword, all right? Then he outran a chariot. So the dude had some adrenaline, and then there's probably just this crash that took place. It's like every time I finish a marathon, that's, I've never finished a marathon, I've never done it, I'm just kidding, all right? So, um, but I can imagine those that do that, like there's sort of this adrenaline, and then it's just this crash, all right? Though I did listen to a teaching this week, the guy said, hey, if you preach two sermons on Sunday for 38 minutes, it's the equivalent of racing a 10K. I'm like, oh, I'm at least marathon level with how long my sermons go, all right? So anyway, so there is some sort of physicality with things. And so there's maybe that that's going on. There's just this fatigue. And I love, as we'll see in a moment, the Lord even cares about that. The angel cooks some breakfast. But there's also in this man isolation. He's isolated himself from the Lord. He's isolated himself from a servant. He's isolated himself from community. And we'll look at this in greater length next week as we talk about the table and this call towards community and being known, being seen, being vulnerable and all the risks that that entails, but we need that. That is leading to his spot of despair. It's also contributing to his arrogance, his self-importance, his self-pity, his victimhood in this. Because in this moment, he's just like, I'm on my own, and I'm doing what I think is right. He's not consulted the Lord. There's spiritual opposition, for sure, and that's taxing, that's wearing. That's why Paul would write to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6. He's like, church, together, put on the full armor of God, because you're in a spiritual battle. There is a voice, there's opposition to you and I experiencing joy. There's the lie of the enemy that says, oh, that thing that happened to you this week, uh, that's on you. You've done that. Putting you into this sort of cycle of like shame or regret. Not to say we never mess up, but there's this voice that speaks condemnation. The spirit, hear me on this, the spirit brings conviction of sin, but the spirit for the Christian never brings condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so when you hear that spirit and there's that opposition that's trying to rob you of joy, that is a voice from the pit of hell. It is not the voice of our Savior and King Jesus. I also think maybe some of the reason that he's in this spot is just the gap between what he thought would take place. I mean, he outruns a chariot thinking, look what's awaiting, feeling the thrill of victory, and then there's the reality of life. Have you been in this spot? Unmet expectations? 
Some of them might be just these very grand things than just the reality of life. And sometimes it's just everyday, ordinary things where I fail to communicate to my wife my unstated expectations, but expect her to read my mind, like those sort of moments, right? Like we do this all the time. And that sort of feeling of despair and depression can set in when what is reality, all right, versus like what our hopes and dreams were, and there's this gap. And so he's dealing with that. He's dealing with guilt. But more than anything, he's a prophet that's filled with pride. And this seems counterintuitive because we don't tend to look at the person that's in utter despair that's like, oh, like, oh man, let me reach out to them. And, and, and we should. But at the end of the day, there can be a pride when it's just this call to look at me, look at me, look at me. And Elijah is in this spot. And I think one of the ways that it manifests itself is when we see the Lord come to him two different times and say, what are you doing here? When the Lord asks questions like this, like to Adam and Eve in the garden after they've eaten the fruit, like, hey, where are you? Like, we know, right? It's not because the Lord lacks information and knowledge. He's not like, oh, I don't, where'd Adam and Eve go? Like, I can't find him, right? It's never that. When he asks this question, what are you doing here? It really is a judgment. It, it is a critique from the Lord in love to say, you're not where I wanted you to be. You have run from me. You've run from my purposes. If the Lord asks Elijah this, if he asks you this, it's clear that, oh, we're in the wrong spot and there's a call to repent and to move back toward our rightful spot, walking with the Lord. I think it's fair to say this at the end of the day, that what is weighing on Elijah is this feeling that it was up to him to save everything. And then when suddenly there was this threat, he forgot about the promises of God. He forgot about the faithfulness of God. I think he had this sort of Messiah or Savior complex. And we can look at that and, and think, oh, well, you know, I, I, thankfully I never have that issue. But is that true? I have to examine, and again, this is why the chair time is so important, not just to read your Bible, but to allow your Bible to read you as well. Why do I respond the way that I do? In what ways have I tried to take control of the situation? In what ways have I thought that it's up to me to be omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient? Like there are these moments where I feel this pressure and I'm sure you feel it too. Like I gotta fix this, I gotta solve this, I gotta enter in and do this. It's not a call to passivity or sitting back and twiddling our thumbs. But there are these moments where in love you need to tell that part of you like you're in timeout, go stand in the corner. Because that is not what we are called to. There is one Messiah, there is one Lord, there is one hero, and it's Jesus, praise God. And it's not you and it's not me, and it frees us. Like, what if Elijah had understood that it wasn't up to him? And so, oh, there's this threat on his life. And he's like, well, the Lord has come through. And even if the Lord doesn't come through in the way that I want, it doesn't change the fact that the Lord is still sovereign and he's good. Zach Eswine, in his book called The Imperfect Pastor, he says this, you were never meant to repent because you can't fix everything. You are meant to repent because you've tried. Even if we could be God for people and fix it all, the fact remains that Jesus often does not have the kind of fixing in mind that you and I want. I think Elijah had a vision for what it was going to look like as chapter 19 happened. And it didn't go the way he wanted. And he runs from God and he runs from God's, God's purposes and he isolates himself. And it leads to a lack of joy. Now, 
again, that, what does that narrative have to do with like the calling for tomorrow morning and your invitation to sit at the feet of Jesus? Well, here's what I think we need to see in this. That there's this provision from the Lord that we see throughout chapter 19 here. And that if this, would, if, we, if this would get a hold of our hearts, I believe that we would begin to see God's disposition toward us. And we would desire to even sit at his feet, knowing it's the best possible place to be. And so as I made mention of, even the Lord, just as a reminder, the angel touched him. The angel you know, told him, get up and eat. And then he looked, and there it is. Head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water, so he ate and drank, and he lay down again. I mean, the Lord cares for our physical being. We're not just, the calling one day is not to be disembodied souls, right? The Lord cares about your physicality. So you see that. But as we journey through this, I think what we see here is the Lord reminding Elijah, even in the details here, remember your past. Remember God's faithfulness call to reframe how we view the future, and a call to rest right here, right now. And so we see this in, in verse 8, and there's way more that we could get into, but just it gives these details about him walking 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. Now, if you know some of the story of Moses, and Moses goes up on Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, all right, and there actually is like smoke and thunder and all these like crazy things that are happening and Moses is given the law of God and it's in that space too that that Moses has the presence of God pass by him like what is happening here is we connect the significance of Moses was up on that mountain 40 days and 40 nights and now here you have Elijah and the people of God journeyed for 40 years in the wilderness it's all these little clues of like remember the story that you're part of remember God's faithfulness And so our calling, when we spend time with the Lord and we open up the scriptures or we read something that helps remind us and reorient us to recalibrate the compass of our hearts toward God and his purposes, part of it is to remember God's faithfulness. It's part of what we're doing here right now. But then there's also this call to sort of reframe the story. As we look at verses 15 to 18, there's these various kings that are mentioned and the, the, the prophet Elisha that's coming up after Elijah. Um, all of that is saying this. If we could sum it up, Elijah's told, listen, I want you to go and install, anoint this pagan king. Wait, what? Why do you want me to do that? Because the Lord is sovereign over everything. And in these verses, there's just a reminder to Elijah, God's plans are still gonna come to fruition. He's gonna use unexpected people The Lord's going to do the Lord's work and the Lord's ways in the Lord's timing. He's not going to do your work or my work in my ways or your ways in my timing. No, no. The Lord is going to do his work in his ways in his timing. 15 to 18 tell us that. And lest we should think for a moment, as Elijah does, sometimes we're the only one. Have you had that sort of mindset? I'm the only one dealing with this. There's again this theme of a remnant. It was in our text last week in Haggai chapter one that the Lord works through a small group and he tells Elijah, listen, there's gonna be 7,000 people that have not bowed, they've not kissed Baal, they have not sworn their allegiance. They have had this fidelity to the Lord. So don't think for a moment that that you're alone, that you're the hero, that you're the only one that gets it. No, no. There's this whole group that God is raising up and he's gonna work his purposes. And then there's this invitation to rest 
in the present. And so this is just my encouragement for us this morning. This is the Lord's encouragement for us. We hear these in 1113 again, right? Stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. The Lord passed by, and there's this mighty wind, but the Lord's not in the, in the wind, all right? There's an earthquake, but the Lord's not in the earthquake. There's a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then it says this, after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. The old King James says there was this still, small voice. We are a culture that loves the loud and the grandiose, and sometimes God chooses to speak that way. It's his prerogative to do that, and he has done that throughout history. But oftentimes, it's an invitation to sit at his feet, to hear his word proclaimed, to not be looking for the big and the dramatic, but rather the still, small voice. And we gotta lean in, And we got to try and set some time aside to actually be able to hear, to not just be distracted with a million things. What would it look like to carve out that time? Not to earn the affection of God. You reading your Bible tomorrow morning will not make God love you any more than he does right now. All right? You are free. You're free to not read the Bible. I'm just telling you the reality is we need to hear that still, small voice that reminds us over and over again, you're a son you're a daughter, you're a child of the king, that God's disposition towards those who are in Christ is that there's no condemnation. Like, I need to hear that every moment, it seems like, we are in this battle, what it feels like, to, to prove ourselves. And it's just exhausting, and the Lord is whispering to us, you got nothing to prove. I love you. You're part of my family. I care deeply for you. I know you messed up yesterday. I know you're going to mess up in these ways. My grace, you cannot exhaust my grace. It continues to flow. And so the question for us is, are we listening to that still, that small voice? This is why Jesus would come on the scene. And in Matthew chapter 11, because this language here even of the still small voice, it shows up in the book of Job, and it shows up in the Psalms one other time. And it's always associated with just rest. The small voice that's telling you, stop pretending, stop performing, stop thinking you got to build your spiritual resume or your actual resume, and just rest in the Lord. So it's so profound when Jesus shows up and he says in Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and my promise to you is I will give you rest. Are you in tune enough with your own story to know there are places of heaviness and of burden? And you might answer people and they say, how's it going? Oh, it's good, or you know, it's going, or whatever it is that we say to one another these days. Every single person here has a heaviness and a burden. You might not even be able to articulate it, but know this, the Lord knows, and he's inviting you. He says, I will give you rest. And then he uses this imagery, take up my yoke, which is this, picture of two oxen that would have this beam placed upon their, their shoulders as they, would, as they would plow together. It says, take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart. Or as other translations say, I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That in that time and place, the expectations that the religious leaders put on the people was referred to as a yoke. 
and it would crush them. They would have signed up for like the heavy wooden yoke. Like, I'll take that as opposed to these rules. You gotta do this, you gotta perform. God, you're gonna fall out of God's favor. And maybe you've been living with that, whether consciously or subconsciously. And Jesus is speaking. This is not my thoughts or opinions. I literally just get to be the conduit of sharing this information. What I just read is true. He will give you rest. And the reason he can offer that is because the yoke, the burden that should have crushed us because of our sin, he took a yoke, he took a burden, he took a beam across his back and was nailed to a Roman execution device and died and was substituted in your place and in my place so that we could be brought in, so that we could have this relationship with God, that we might know his yoke now to be light and easy, that there's a gentleness about Jesus. Elijah didn't need somebody to come and just light him up. Even though he was filled with pride and arrogance, he also needed somebody to come alongside and in the small, still voice say, I see you and I am here to minister to you and to remind you. It's this gentle word, do you know Jesus that way? And so I'll close with this to try and just for a couple moments be as pragmatic as, as possible, all right? I'm not here to try and tell you, here's what it needs to look like or what your day should look like or when you should get this time with, with the Lord, but let me just offer a couple things that might be helpful as we think about it. I think there's gotta be this posture in whatever we do of resistance but also of embrace, meaning this, there's gonna be things that come flying at you. How do you resist that? C.S. Lewis talked about it in Mere Christianity. The moment you wake up each morning, all your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And some of you are like, yeah, those are my children, but whatever it happens to be, right? And the first job of each morning consists in shoving, well, hopefully not that, shoving them all back and listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other, larger, stronger, and yet, listen to the language, quieter life come flowing in. Isn't that what we need? We need to hear that voice. And so practically, what are you gonna do? There's a million things that are out there. On the message notes today, even at the, the bottom, if you scroll all the way through, there's a link for he reads truth and she reads truth, all right? I think it's a wonderful resource. That doesn't mean that's the God-ordained way that you have to, to go study the Bible, but it's a thing that's out there. There's no lack of things. Seriously, come ask me, ask one of the other staff, talk to somebody. Don't try and figure this out in isolation if you don't know where to start. We need to hear, we need to get a plan. And in a book called The Common Rule, I thought this is helpful, this would be convicting. I think my life would look radically different if I embraced this. And so I'm up here this morning as a massive hypocrite in, in many ways. Um, but he talks about this and sort of getting a plan. What it, would it look like for us to engage with scripture before a screen? And you're like, well, I read my scripture on the screen. Okay, I get it, right? But isn't it true that some of the ways that the things come rushing at us is because the alarm goes off and we reach for the phone and we check email, we check Facebook, we check Instagram, we check whatever it is that you wanna check or the news feed. Or you're like, oh, I don't have an issue with my phone, but we, we turn on the news, whatever channel it is that you prefer to listen to. And those things are actually discipling our hearts. And they're not evil. If you're like, I'm getting rid of my phone, I'm getting rid of my TV, like, I'll take it, seriously, just come give it to me. Like, I, I, I'm not anti those things. but. We need that time. And maybe you're like, dude, I, I don't do that in the morning. Okay, maybe scripture before sleep. I, I don't know, but like where is it that you can be reminded and hear that still, small voice? 
Because we need to stare. We, be, we become what we behold. And so in that same book, Justin Early says this, the way we guide our formation is not by looking in and choosing our favorite identity. It is actually by looking out. We become what or who we reflect, which is to say we become what we pay attention to. We can't become ourselves by ourselves. The way we discover ourselves is by staring at someone else. There's a lot of things that are vying for our attention. Stare at me, stare at me, and Jesus is inviting us. Come sit with him and stare at him and hear that gentle voice. Very practically, as a help toward this, if you We've got this book out on the tables out there. If you didn't get one on the way in, we've got enough for at least every household. We probably have more than that. Uh, This is yours to take. This is not the be-all, end-all. But maybe even just saying, there's some short chapters. I'm gonna try and read a chapter a day. No one's gonna check in on with you if you miss a chapter, right, or miss a day. But be reminded over and over again God's love that he has for you in Christ Jesus. This is the one spot in Scripture where Jesus describes his heart describes who he is. He's like, I'm gentle, lowly. I need time with that. There's enough angry, intense, demanding Lord, so to speak, out there. And Jesus is saying, come and spend time with me. And so church, I want to pray for us. And then I'll, uh, I'll tell us what we're going to do in the rest of the service. But would you just join me in prayer right now? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness and your grace toward us. Thank you for this invitation to sit at the feet of Jesus. What a gift that is. God, when we believe the lie of the enemy that says we even need to do this, that would sort of pervert this gift, make it something that would be seen as legalistic or to earn your affection, please reframe it for us. Remind us this is a gift that we get to enjoy. And God, we need to hear that still, small voice. And so God, I'd be praying that even right now, You'd be speaking to us by the power of your spirit. Help us to listen to you, to not all the competing voices. Would you form us and make us in the kind of people that are dialed in, that we can recognize, oh, that's the voice of Jesus. And God, I pray that you would be building us as your church for your glory and for our great joy. And we pray these things in Christ's name, amen.